Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Edward Harris. On June 1st, 2021, Emeritus Professor Harris joined the show, and we had a conversation that explored what scholars know about law in classical Athens. Today, we're going to speak about and explore what scholars know about court trials in classical Athens. Edward Harris is an Emeritus Professor in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at Durham University, based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including these two books as examples. He's author of The Rule of Law in Action in Democratic Athens. That was published by Oxford University Press. He's also author of Democracy and the Rule of Law in Classical Athens, Essays on Law, Society, and Politics. And that was published by Cambridge University Press. And Emeritus Professor Harris joins the show from his home in Athens. Welcome back on the show, Edward. Hi, nice to have you. Good to connect with you again, Edward. Good. Okay, so before we get into talking about trial and proceedings, we are chatting about and exploring what scholars know about court trials in classical Athens. If someone was to go back in time to the period that we're speaking about, and if you could, Edward, in your response to just so that it gets in the episode, if you could clarify what, what time period we're speaking about in the context of classical Athens. If someone goes back in time what would they physically see when it comes to courts? Uh, we don't know very much, actually, uh, about the actual physical layout of the courts. Uh, they were probably, though, very simple. They were probably uh, surrounded by walls. Um, some of them may have been covered. Uh, some of them may have been actually in the open air. Uh, but it's not like a, a modern court building, uh, which is a very impressive edifice uh, meant to kind of uh, make everybody uh, stand up, uh, take notice, and uh, be, be very serious. Uh, these are very uh, these are very simple, um, and they probably were sitting. The uh, judges were sitting on benches, and uh, in front of them, of course, would be the accuser and the uh, defendant. Uh, they've been uh, excavating in the uh, agora in, in Athens uh, for the uh, for many many years, uh, but they've uh, they found uh, a few things. We'll talk about those later. They found some ballots, and they also found some uh, these uh, tokens, uh, which are used to identify judges. But that, and also uh, some things to measure actually the length of speeches. Those are the main things actually that have been found. Okay, and and time period that we're speaking about. Uh, the uh, everybody thinks of the quote democracy starting in 508 and then going down to 322 BCE. Uh, on the other hand, uh, most of our information about the courts and that comes from the speeches of the Atagorators really start about the 420s BCE and go down to about the 320s BCE. So about 100 years, actually, uh, we're really talking about for the evidence uh, that we're going to be discussing today. Okay, and good segue for the next question, your term evidence. Um, what are the main sources that scholars rely on to understand this topic more, Edward? We're very lucky in a way because this is, you have to consider this is a society that was what, um, uh, 2,300 years ago. Uh, and for uh, intervening periods, there's sometimes not very much evidence. We're really very fortunate. Uh, are there going to be three main uh, pieces of evidence? First of all, they're the speeches of the Attic orators. And there were, well, canonically 10 orators. There really were 11, uh, if you add in Apollodorus. 
And we have their uh, speeches, uh, and we think that they were pretty close to what was delivered in court. Obviously, there were some revisions. But as far as we can tell, they give us a very good idea. They're chock full of information, uh, and we're very lucky uh, to have actually uh, those texts. Uh, one of the most famous one, of course, is Demosthenes, uh, who had uh, a huge effect, a very famous name, and he had a huge influence uh, on Cicero, uh, who imitated uh, his speeches. Then another work, which we're also very lucky to have, it's the Constitution of the Athenians, which was attributed to Aristotle. Now, this work was lost, and it was only discovered in the 1890s. It was discovered on some papyri in Egypt and published uh, again uh, very soon afterwards, and it's been commented on. Uh, this is a very rich source, uh, and it has a detailed account of the Athenian constitution, uh, especially in the period after 402. And there's, uh, there are about 10 chapters that give us a lot of information about how court trials uh, were conducted. Uh, so that's a, that's a very, very valuable source. There are many translations if people are interested in finding out more. Uh, the last thing is we have our inscriptions. Now, the Athenians uh, were obsessed with keeping records, absolutely obsessed. And this, a lot of this has to do with their obsession with controlling their magistrates and also controlling finances because they don't want people stealing money from them. And therefore, they committed a lot of these documents, and especially the uh, decrees and the laws from the assembly, on stone. And many of those have been actually preserved. They're really in the thousands, which is really quite remarkable. And so this is also a very rich source. So between the or orations, again, by the orators, uh, by the uh, Constitution of the Athenians, attributed to Aristotle, and the inscriptions, we have a really uh, amazing amount of material uh, for a society, which really is 2,300 years ago. Okay. To create enough background and context for the conversation, then, can you share what court trials were like in classical Athens? And then for most of the rest of the conversation, Edward, we'll work, away, work our way into the details. Uh, the, the one thing is, I think it's very important before we talk about the procedures and what it was like to go into court. I think it's very important to keep in mind the ideas that lay behind this. Um, these procedures that I'm going to discuss, they may sound a, a little technical, they may sound a little dry, but I think one can understand them and kind of appreciate them if we keep in mind what the aims of the system were. And they are very important because they're common in many ways to our legal systems today, even though the procedures are very different. And this was the ideal mainly of the rule of law. The ideal of the rule of law was very important in classical Athens. It goes back actually back to Solon in the archaic period. Uh, but there are some basic aspects. And as we go through the discussion, we need to keep these main aspects of the rule of law in mind. The first thing is, is trying to achieve fairness in procedure. And this means that for, uh, that one, it's fair both for the accuser, but especially also for the defendant. And the defendant, first of all, gets to hear the charges against him. Uh, he gets a chance to speak, and he also gets a chance to present evidence. So um, that's an important aspect of fairness and procedure. Another aspect of that is that the trial will take place before impartial judges. 
In other words, people who will give a, an impartial decision without fear or favor or preferring one to the other. Um, another aspect uh, of this, the rule of law, is the importance of equality before the law. And this, in, for the Greeks, this mainly means that the wealthy and the poor will be judged by the same rules. And if a poor man has a stronger legal case, he will prevail over a rich man. It's a very important uh, idea of uh, equality before the law. And then the last thing, which is also very important, is that cases will be decided by consistent rules. In other words, when a person goes into court, he knows how the case is going to be decided by what rules. Another, and so he won't have to guess, uh, are they going to look at this kind of rule? Are they going to look at this kind of rule? He will know what kind of rule he's going to be judged by. And this is extremely important in ensuring fairness. So we've got to keep those aspects of the rule in mind, uh, rule of law in mind, before we actually look at the procedures. And we need, as we look at the procedures, to think, well, wait a minute, which, what's the point of this procedure? How does this procedure help? to implement the rule of law. Yes, and I think that creates some good background sharing those principles, Edward. So to start to expand on this conversation more then, and we've chatted about this before, so I think it's natural to go, go there. Do you wanna cover what the main categories, the, the types of trials that would have existed in classical Athens? Yeah, good, that's a good, that's a good question. So that's actually kind of the next, um, area I wanted to move to. Uh, the, in modern uh, jurisdictions, we tend to divide uh, cases into civil cases and criminal cases. Civil cases are between two private individuals where we have a plaintiff who wants something from a uh, defendant because the defendant has violated his rights in one way or another. And most cases, it actually is a kind of a monetary judgment. If, the convict, if there's conviction, uh, the defendant will pay the plaintiff. And that, so that's a civil trial. In, uh, and then we also have criminal trials. And in criminal trials, of course, then there is a public prosecutor and the public prosecutor brings a case against the defendant who has done something to violate public safety. In other words, there is uh, something like treason or uh, something which uh, threatens actually the community uh, as a whole, not just uh, threatens one person, but threatens kind of large groups of people or threatens kind of the safety of the state. So that's that basic distinction. Now, of course, in a, there is a public prosecutor for criminal trials. Now, and then, so in Athens, it's a similar distinction. There are what we call private cases, which are like civil cases, whereas an individual who has been wronged brings his case against another individual. And then also there are something called public cases, which are like criminal cases in the sense that the action is brought against the defendant because the defendant has threatened the community as a whole. But in Athens, what's different is there are no public prosecutors. Anybody, any citizen could bring one of these public cases against a defendant. And uh, in certain cases, the city would uh, elect prosecutors, but it was very, very rare. Sometimes there would be investigations that were done by the council or by other bodies. 
But in general, though, it was the it was a it was a, an individual. It could be in certain cases, even foreigners actually could bring in certain cases these public cases. So that's the basic distinction, which is very similar in some ways to the civil criminal distinction. But I'm going to also get in the end to homicide cases. Homicide cases are kind of well a category uh, unto itself, and uh, they have special rules. And it's and in a way they're somewhat like the private cases, but they're also somewhat like the public cases. But we'll get to those uh, at the end, and then why they are unusual. Okay, so to work our way through those categories, then when it comes to private cases, can you share what the general process was for a private case to be heard? Yeah, the I'm going to start out first by talking the preliminary steps. Now the preliminary steps are kind of common actually for the private cases and for the public cases. Very simple, if you want to initiate a case in Athens, you basically uh, go up to the person whom you're going to bring the case against and you tell him, and it's always him, this is a case of, there's always men uh, involved, usually against men. Uh, there may be women defendants, but we don't know of any women accusers. They go to him and he summons the person with two witnesses. Uh, you're walking in the street, you see a person you want to bring to court, you say, Joe Smith, I am going to summons you to appear before a magistrate on a certain day. Now, what's very important is that he has to have with him two witnesses. And the witness will then testify that the summons was actually made, because this is something that could be abused. I mean, a man could be could go to uh, a magistrate and say, oh, I summons this defendant, but he never, uh, he never showed up, so please give me a judgment. Well, uh, the magistrate obviously wants to know if the summons was really, really given uh, because he doesn't uh, want to, uh, he doesn't want to give a case against a, a defendant uh, who was not informed. So that's the reason for these two witnesses, which also have to, who also have to come and testify, yes, there was the summons that was given. So that's the very first step. Now, the, uh, we don't know in certain cases that also if the person was inside a house, the accuser was not allowed to go into the defendant's house. He had to shout from outside uh, because it was, unless you had a, a decree of the assembly, you were not allowed to go into the house of private individuals. So that's the first step. Uh, that gets us started. So then on the day, the both the accuser and the defendant appear before the magistrate. And they, and then there's a very important document. Now, some scholars have claimed that written documents don't play much of a role in Athenian legal procedures. Well, that actually is, there's plenty of evidence actually to the contrary. And one of the most important documents is something which in Greek is called the enclema. We might call it the indictment. And this is a very, very important uh, document. The accuser writes on this document called the enclema, which he hands to the relevant magistrate. He's his name, his father's name, and the name of his dean. Or if he is a foreigner, he gives his status in Athens. He's either a medic or he's a foreigner. So that's important. And those are the, those are the ways of identifying people uh, in classical Athens. They didn't have last names, they had their father's names and they had their dean. It's, it's a bit kind of like your address. 
Then you have the name of the defendant, same thing, the defendant's name, his father's name, and then his residence, um, whether he's a citizen or whether he's just residing in Athens as a, uh, a resident um, foreigner. And then it's important he has to pick the procedure he's using. In other words, is this a procedure? Is this a, is this a public procedure? Is it a private procedure? And what is it a procedure for? Is it a procedure for theft? Is this procedure for violation of contract? Uh, is, it a viol is it to get a dowry back, something related to marriage? Or is it a public case? Is it a charging with treason or other some very serious, uh, serious uh, offense? And then another very important thing in this document is the accuser then has to say what specific actions in other words, if it's a charge of treason, he would say, well, this man committed treason by opening the gates to the enemy at a certain place and a certain time, or uh, he betrayed the fleet by telling the enemy where this ship was, or if it was a case simply for theft, this man uh, stole money from this certain place, he stole a certain amount of money, uh, and that would be the specific uh, actions which the defendant had performed to violate the law. And this was very important and very for many reasons. First of all, the official needs to know that the case is being brought in the right place. In other words, there are different officials in charge of different kinds of cases. And uh, a very good example of this is, for instance, the charges of impiety. And when Socrates was charged with impiety, which was a serious, serious public offense, uh, his accuser summoned him before uh, a man called the Basilus. And the Basilus, or king, was a special official who was in charge of this kind of a case. And we actually have, in the beginning of the Euthyphro, we have a little scene of this. And we actually know where it happened, actually, a place called the Stoa Basileos, which has been excavated and it's in the Agora. So this document is very uh, important and that's really kind of what starts the case. And after the trial, the document is kept on record. And it's very important again in fairness because it lets the defendant know what he's charged with and how he's going to construct his case in court. So do you understand all those aspects, say, of this indictment and how important it is for ensuring fairness and also important, actually, administratively for the official. Yes, I think that provides sufficient background uh, at that in those initial phases, Edward. Now, you use the term magistrate. So in this context, what is a magistrate? And this might be um, part, part of your response as, as well um, or related to magistrate. But can you also clarify who, in a private case, who or, or if it's perhaps plural, is responsible for administrating the proceeding, and then uh, who or plural is responsible for judging the case? Okay, that's a good question. There's a, there's a definite separation between the person who administers the case those are the officials, and they're called the uh, archontes, uh, the rulers or the magistrates. And the judges, they're called the dicasti. It's completely separate. Uh, for a private case, most of them come for a group of individuals called the 40. Now, what's interesting about this is in Athens, uh, all magistrates serve for one year, 
they're mostly selected by lot. In other words, if you want to serve as a magistrate, you go, you submit your name, and you can be selected by lot, and you serve for a year. And then you don't serve for a second year. The Athenians are obsessed with prevent, avoiding tyranny. And so what they do is they decentralize things, and there's this constant rotation in office. This is one of the things which is characteristic of Athenian democracy. And you would say, well, that's really, uh, how could this system function? Um, this is, these people are all amateurs. They don't have any training. Well, the fact of the matter is, is you had enough of these people who were rotating these offices enough and also going into the assembly and going into the council. They knew a lot about the system and how it worked, and they also could have received kind of uh, lessons from their predecessors. So that's a very important part. Uh, for a lot of public cases, it's another group called the Thesmothetai, but they are the same. They're the same kind of officials. They are selected uh, once uh, a year, they serve for a year, and then there's another board. So does that give you some idea about what these officials are like? Yes, and how many officials, so the ones that are uh, judging it, can you clarify again what they're called and how, how many would, would typically be responsible for uh, producing a verdict? Well, it, it's again, it's a kind of the volunteer basis. Um, we know that there were 6,000 people a year who could be selected at any one day uh, as a judge. And the, the term is dicastes. Some people translate this as juror, but that really is very misleading and it's also very anachronistic because in modern cases, a juror usually only serves one case, two cases in a lifetime. These dicasti would serve, they would listen to hundreds of cases in a year and they could serve several years. The other reason is, a uh, thing that's also very interesting is that uh, probably in the fifth century, the Athenian male well, citizen population was about maybe 50,000. It may have dropped to about 30,000 in the fourth century. So 6,000, as you realize, is a, is a large percentage of the population which is actually spending their time in the courts in any one given year. So they are separate. We'll get a little bit more into the judges and how they judge cases when we actually talk about the cases in court. Does that, so you've got a good idea of the difference between the officials and the judges who are separate um, individuals. Those are separate yes. roles. Yes, and does any evidence show that women ever serve in these roles? No, that's the one thing about the, uh, about the uh, Athenian uh, government, this is all men, it's always men. Women might serve as priestesses, uh, and this is, there are very few of those, but otherwise it's uh, all the officials are men and all the judges are men. Okay. So do you want to continue then and uh, complete the, the private proceedings section, and then we'll go to the public next? Uh, the private proceedings and the public proceedings, there are several things that are in common, but there's several things that are different. The one thing that's very important is after the indictment is laid down, what the uh, official does is then sends both people to this kind of a compulsory arbitration. And he sends the case to an arbitrator. The arbitrator is an individual who is in his, who's 59. The Athenians, when they become 18, are put onto a register and they have to serve. And if uh, it's a military uh, group, and in any given year, if they need a certain number of people, they say, well, we're going to draw, we're going to summon everybody from eight, well, actually from uh, 21 to kind of 30 or 30 to 45, and you remained in this register until you were uh, until up the age of 58. 
And then after that, at age 59, when you had a lot of experience with Athenian government, you had to serve as an arbitrator. So the official will then, uh, who takes the case, will assign the case to an arbitrator. And that is a very key part of the Athenian system. It started in about 400 BCE, and it probably was also a way of trying to get a kind of informal kind of settlement uh, and you know, without actually going to all the into the details of a regular court case, could, which could be very divisive. And the, what this did is it took place over several days. And the uh, accuser presents his case, the defendant presents his case. And then the arbitrator uh, could also ask questions, which was also very important. If, if they hadn't told him enough, he could then say, well, how about this? Um, can you give me this detail on this? Can you give me a detail on that? What he would first try to do is mediate. And mediate means that he would try to get them to agree to a solution. And in other words, maybe it might be, you know, uh, we'll kind of split the difference, uh, something very, um, it was considered to be fair for both sides. If he couldn't bring them together through mediation, he would then declare a judgment on oath. And he said, okay, uh, you won't agree. This is what I think will happen if you go to court. And then he would again issue a judgment. And then the defendant and the accuser would look at that and they would discover whether they liked it or not. Now, they didn't have to give reasons. They didn't have to say, well, this is uh, wrong. Uh, it's not like an appeal process. Um, but they would say, well, I don't really like that judgment. I, I think I want to go to court instead. So if both of them agree, on the other hand, then it ends there. And that is uh, that judgment is recorded and it's put in the city archive, and that's the end of it. And then also usually in that there's a case, there's also a, a clause which says the defendant and the accuser will remain friends in the future and they'll be, um, uh, they'll be good friends. And that, so, so hopefully it not only kind of settles the case, but it also uh, makes sure that they won't have any disputes in the future. If they refuse, on the other hand, all the evidence which has been presented at, the, at this procedure, at this arbitration, is placed in something called an echinos, which is, means a jar. And if they presented witness statements, if they presented documents, if they presented challenges, they will then put those in the jar and the jar will then be handed to the magistrate. And then at the actual trial, we'll get back to that in a minute, neither the accuser nor the defendant can add any new evidence. Now, this is very important also for fairness. It means, especially for the defendant, that the defendant won't be confronted with any surprises when they actually go to trial in front of the judges. So again, uh, that's very uh, important. That's the one thing that uh, a litigant doesn't want to have happen well, when he comes into court is that he doesn't want to you know, be confronted with evidence that he didn't know existed. And that is very important for kind of preventing those surprises and therefore enforcing uh, fairness. So does that, you understand everything then for about the, this first phase uh, in the uh, private cases about the arbitration? Is that all clear? Something, yes, yeah, something that was going through my mind a few minutes ago was how much of what you were describing echoes a civil legal proceeding today in a place like Canada. I presume a place like the UK would be very similar. How, however, then you got to the part about in, the, in that initial arbitration, the 
the um, the arbitrator making an initial judgment, and then the two parties can can agree or not. Now that could could could, could exist in in some cases, but I'm not familiar um, with with that. And then the other thought that I, the other uh, mention that you made that I thought was uh, very benevolent and very very um, very endearing was if they both agree to the arbitrator's um, decision or perhaps proposal because the, the the two parties need to agree to it that the, the two the two uh, need to agree that they're going to become that they're going to they're going to remain friends so that really strikes me as um, like a full restoration type process to the to the relationship so I thought I thought that those two two points were very um, were, were very interesting um, but yeah very interesting points Okay, Edward. Is there anything else? Then you probably there's probably a little bit more to cover on the the private side. Yeah. Then well, then if they don't agree and it does go to a case, then it, then there is a uh, selection of judges and they go uh, into the court. And in that case, um, if the if it's a smaller amount of money, they'll probably have about two hundred judges. If it's a larger amount of money, they'll have three hundred judges. They're all selected by lot. They have a very complex way of selecting the judges, which I won't uh, go into. I mean, it would take me in another uh, podcast to uh, explain it uh, in detail. But the main thing is here is that every uh, person who's going to, all these 6,000 people who are going to be judges, they get a token, uh, which they then hand to a magistrate. And the magistrate uses that token uh, through a kind of process, a kind of lottery-like process to determine which ones are going to be selected that day and to which court they're going to be, they're going to go. And the thing that's important about this is going back to this idea of the rule of law, the importance of being having your case tried by impartial judges. So nobody knows who the judge is going to be. The judges will have no relationship to either the accused or the defendant, and they are um, will get back to their oath in a minute. Uh, they also swear to vote without uh, favor or uh, hostility towards either one. So that's very important. So then uh, when they come to court, um, also depending on the case, the um, private cases probably take about three hours. Um, and depending also, again, on this, the amount uh, which is going to be at stake. And the timing of the speeches is measured by something called the clepsidra, which is the water clock. And one of these has been discovered in the Agora. They pour water in. There's a little hole, and the speaker gets a chance to speak as long as there's water kind of in the uh, in this uh, jar. And first, the accuser speaks, and then the defendant speaks, and then the accuser speaks, and then the defendant speaks. Now they can present any evidence they want. Most of the evidence in private cases tends to be witnesses. The witnesses have to write down their statement, and then the statement is read out to the court. And then after that, uh, the, uh, the, the litigant asks the witness, I said, do you swear to the statement? And the, usually they will say, of course, yes. Now, it's very important again, and here we have again the importance of writing in the system. It's important for them to write these things down because if someone accuses them of making a false statement, there won't be any dispute about what the statement actually was because it's written and it's also kept on file. So it's important. Now, in private cases, they also can other have other documents read. One, contracts can be read in uh, commercial cases and also wills. Those are the main things that are uh, the documents. The problem is, is for wills, they have to be attested by 
people, uh, to other witnesses, because there's no nothing like a notary public or there's no place to register actually private documents. Uh, and that's why we have mostly witnesses in private cases. And then after, again, both uh, have spoken twice, uh, the judges then vote and they get a token. Each one is given a, the two tokens. Uh, what they are, or they look like they're little um, wheels with axles through them. And one axle is hollow and one axle is full. And the axles are then, if you choose one, and then you put that into a jar. And this is another aspect of this. No one can see whether you're voting for the accuser or the defendant. And the Greeks think this is very important. Private, uh, in both private cases and also in public cases, that the secret ballot. And because of secret ballot, because no one can see how the judges are voting, that means the judges can vote according to their conscience. Uh, and that's very uh, important, secret ballot. And normally when the ancient historians describe uh, cases which are very unfair, uh, they often will say there was no secret ballot, and there was a use of kind of intimidation and uh, in order to get the judges to vote a certain way. So again, that's another very important aspect of fairness and procedure uh, in the rule of law. And then after that, uh, there, there's an official who actually counts the votes, and then they discover if it's whether for the defendant or if it's for the accuser. Now, if the, uh, if the accuser loses, he has to pay one-sixth of the amount claimed to the, uh, to the city. And this is a way of discouraging frivolous prosecutions. The thing is about the Athenian system is it's very accessible. It's very easy, as you can see, anybody can kind of come up uh, in the street and you know, start a case. It's very easy that way. Uh, you don't have to hire a lawyer. Uh, you don't have to file a lot of paperwork. There's one important piece of paper, but otherwise it's very simple. And the laws are accessible. People can find them, they're published. Uh, it's easy to uh, know how to bring a case. And we know that because there, there must have been a lot of cases and the average Athenian knows how to do it. The downside of accessibility is that people will abuse the privilege and kind of muck up the system by bringing cases which have no merit. So they have to get a way of discouraging these frivolous cases. And in the private side, the way of doing this is by putting this penalty for accusers uh, who lose their cases. Okay. Yes. Okay. Un understood. Anything else on the, the private side that you want to cover? But those are the main features, actually. I think it's important now to move over to the public cases because they're very different. Um, in certain ways, they're the same, but in very important regards, they are different. So let's move on to that, if that's, if, unless you have any questions about the private procedure. Yes, please, Edward. Yeah, let's go to the public proceedings. Okay, the public proceeding is started in exactly the same way. Uh, you walk up to a person in the street and you ask them to come to the uh, magistrate uh, on a certain day, and they have to also provide the witnesses to the summons. On the other hand, they do not go to arbitration in a public case. Now, there's no way. When you're dealing with something that is a threat to the entire community, you can't come up with a compromise solution. I mean, you're either guilty or you're not guilty. So they go directly to another procedure called the anocrisis. And at the anocrisis, basically, there is a questioning back and forth between the uh, accuser and the defendant and also the magistrate. And what he may do is he reviews the plaint, I'm getting back to the plaint. And if the information in that is not correct, 
that information can be corrected. And that's very important because the plaint is going to be read out to the judges. So that is the anachronism. We don't know as much about this procedure as we like, but we do know that it was important. It was also very important because it also gave the, especially the defendant, but also the accuser, some idea of what his opponent's arguments were going to be in court so he could prepare to write uh, his speech or prepare his response. So again, uh, the anachronism is very important, again, for this idea of fairness uh, in the rule of law. Okay. Then we get into the actual court case. The, in this case, the, in public cases, there are more judges because it's a more important uh, for the community and therefore it, more people need to be involved. It's also probably felt that if there are more judges there and there's a very important person who says the defendant, they don't want the judges to feel intimidated and their strength in numbers and if they're more judges there, they're obviously going to feel more confident to vote against this powerful individual uh, if they feel he's guilty. So the number of judges will probably be at least 501, but we've heard of cases where there are more, as many as a, a thousand uh, in a very important case. It's a lot of people. And then in the case, again, just as in both the public case and in the private cases, an official reads out the enclema, in other words, what the charges are, because the judges aren't just going to vote on anything. They can't kind of vote on, well, I generally feel guilty, or I don't like this person. They vote to accept the charges in the enclema, in the indictment, or to reject them. And that's it. There's no kind of third possible solution. It's either accept or to reject the charges in the enclema. So they need to know what these charges are. And they read it out at the beginning of the trial, at the end of the trial. <laughs> now, the main difference, again, with the public cases, in the public case, the accuser has about three hours, probably, to speak, and he speaks once. And then the defendant has also about three hours to speak, and he also speaks once. Now, in this cases, we know from the speeches that we have that there's a lot more evidence at their disposal. And it's amazing, actually, how many different types of documents there were in the archives in which they could actually use. There were laws, there were decrees that were passed by the assembly, uh, there were records. Uh, if you're trying magistrates, we know that magistrates would send back letters, and those letters would be kept on file. Uh, letters from foreign kings would be kept on file. Uh, there are also financial records, uh, which are kept on file. So it's, it's really remarkable how many written records were used and the defendant or the accuser could use these written records actually to support his case. Uh, on the other hand, there are also witnesses. And then one rather strange thing, which we sometimes hear about, which is very odd for us and probably even abhorrent, is that the testimony of slaves under torture could also be used in court. Now, for instance, if the either the accuser uh, own slaves, or especially if the defendant uh, owns slaves, the opponent could challenge uh, that uh, the other uh, litigant to bring the slave into court, and the slave then would be tortured, and the testimony that he gave under torture would be entered as evidence. Now, we have a number of these challenges. To us, this seems rather barbaric. Um, and it probably was. 
And we do know that there were certain cases. It seems to be, on the other hand, that if a challenge was issued in all the cases we have that we know of in these, um, in these speeches, the challenge was always rejected by the other side. You had to have both the accuser and the defendant agree to do this um, torture, and normally it was rejected. I don't think it was necessarily because they had this humane attitude and they didn't like to use torture because we know in other cases, in several cases, they actually did torture slaves. Um, but uh, we do know uh, that they did have that practice, which also shows there's a big difference between, again, free men and free women and also slaves uh, and slave women. Now, uh, so that's the actual type uh, of evidence. Uh, now, at the end of the trial, again, after the accuser had spoken for three hours, the defendant had spoken for three hours, uh, they then proceeded to, again, have the judges uh, vote. And it was the same thing. Each received kind of one token for the accuser, one token for the defendant, and that person picked which one he was going to use, and he put it in this jar or kind of pithos. And again, again, the emphasis was on secret ballot. And then the official again would uh, again count up uh, all the votes and then say who uh, uh, whether the uh, accused uh, was uh, convicted uh, or not. So those basic features then of the public trial kind of all clear enough. Did the concept of case law exist by, that, by this point in time? Were, were previous decisions in other proceedings kept on record and were judges, and if so, were judges encouraged to consider those previous decisions prior to, uh, if you will, casting their, their ballot? We do have, actually, there are, uh, I actually uh, just published an article three years ago in which I collected all the references in the speeches that we have preserved to prior cases. Now, the prior cases, as I said, once the trial took place, the enclema was kept on file and could be referred to. And there are a lot of references to prior cases. But there's a, here is a major difference between common law systems and what we call civil law systems. In other words, the systems that really are inspired by the British system as opposed to the Roman law systems of the continent. In the uh, British system, um, the uh, one law can be made one by the sovereign, which now would be parliament, but also uh, prior decisions, if the case was decided in a certain way by a judge, that creates a precedent and all subsequent uh, courts have to abide by that precedent. And therefore, in other words, law can be built up by these series of precedents. We hear about this, for instance, in the United States, about the Supreme Court abiding by precedents. This is a very hot issue at this time. On the other hand, in the jurisdictions uh, that have been inspired by Roman law, civil law, uh, this idea of binding precedent doesn't exist. Now, this is also very important, though, in terms of the rule of law, because if we're going to have the rule of law, we're going to have fairness of procedure, cases have to be decided in a consistent fashion. So everybody knows kind of, you know, how cases are going to be decided. There are no surprises. Uh, everybody knows the rules. In Athens, first of all, there's no system of appeals. And those how in, 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 say, the United States and in Britain, if a court does not decide according to precedent, the case can be appealed and a higher court will then enforce that precedent. You don't have that system in Athens. Once the case was decided, it was decided. On the other hand, 
judges, uh, the litigants may refer to prior cases. If there's some question about the meaning of the law, we do know that what they'll do is they'll refer to prior cases. Sometimes they'll give actual evidence for this or decrees which imply a certain interpretation of the law. And they will cite that evidence as showing, look, this is the way the courts previously have understood the law. And therefore, because previous courts have understood the law, you should decide in exactly the same way. Um, and I've studied quite a lot of these actually in my book uh, on the rule of law in action. Uh, there's no sense of binding precedent, but there is the sense that these precedents should be persuasive. And as far as we can tell, we don't have many cases, but we, we do have cases where a law was being decided, uh, interpreted one way by the accuser and another way by the defendant. It tends to be that the court goes with the interpretation, which is the one which is generally followed. So the one thing that's important about this is precedents cannot be used to create law. The legislator is the Athenian assembly. Courts do not create law. So cases are cited, but they're cited to achieve consistency in the application of law, which is very important in the rule of law. Is that, that's, a, that's a long answer to your question, but I hope it's clear. Yes, I'm glad we covered it. And you provided, uh, given the time we have today, you, you provided a, a very sufficient answer, Edward. Okay, um, I have no one other... One, yes. one more thing I want to add, though, about the, uh, the public cases. In the public cases, um, when the penalty is not determined, there's a second vote. And we see this, for instance, in Socrates' trial uh, for impiety. After the defendant is found guilty, the accuser then proposes a penalty. It can be death, it can be exile, it can be a penalty. Uh, and those are the main penalties. And then the defendant proposes a penalty. Socrates proposes a smaller penalty. And then the, then the judges vote again. They either pick the accuser's penalty or they pick the defendant's penalty. And that, of course, happens in the case of Socrates. They decide to pick the accuser's penalty, which is death. So that's another distinction between the private cases and the public cases. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to cover regarding the public cases? No, I think that basically uh, is it. Uh, we know there are quite a few public cases. One thing that's very though distinctive about the Athenian system is that a lot of these public cases were used to attack public officials and especially generals. And if a general lost a battle, there was always a suspicion that he'd either been bribed or that he was being treasonous. And the Athenians were very paranoid uh, in this way. And we do know that uh, early in the fifth century, they had a procedure called ostracism. And an ostracism was used if they suspected anybody was aiming at tyranny. But in about the 420s, a politician named Cleon was uh, realized that it was very easy to get a conviction in an Athenian court on a public case. And one thing that I need to add on this, that in a private, in a civil case nowadays, the person who wins is the person who gets just a majority of the jurors at a case. In other words, if you get seven as opposed to five, all you need to get is a majority to win. On the other hand, as you know, in criminal cases, uh, in uh, the United States especially, uh, the, if the, for, to convict on a criminal case, you have to get all 12 jurors to judge for you. And if one decides against you, you have a hung trial. 
and you have to uh, you have to go uh, again. Uh, you have to have another uh, uh, trial. In Athens, on the other hand, there was no distinction between the private cases and the public cases. In both types of cases, the defendant was convicted if the accuser got a bare majority of the votes. That meant that it was much easier to convict a defendant in a public case in ancient Athens than it was to convict, uh, that is to convict nowadays uh, in a criminal case where the bar is set also very high. And the idea is too that you're supposed to have uh, you know, conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. Whereas in Athens, there, this high bar did not exist. And a lot of people discuss the trial of Socrates and I think the one thing they kind of forget is they forget this point that actually, if Socrates were tried, uh, you know, uh, according to kind of the rules of a modern court, uh, he wouldn't have been convicted. It was just in the Athenian court, it was very easy to get a conviction on a public case. So do you see that main difference between ancient trials and modern trials? Yes, it's, um, it's an important uh, distinction. Okay, so the third proceeding you had mentioned were proceedings that relate to homicide trials. Do you want to cover that now? And as you know, and the listeners know, the episodes come out at uh, under under an hour. So we have probably as a time check about eight minutes to, to wrap up the, the chat. So if you feel that you can go, go, go through the main items, please feel free. Or if you think it's better in this case to share the distinctions between some of the previous stuff that you had mentioned, either or. I'd like to really end with the, because these are kind of a bizarre <laughs> type of proceeding uh, and they sometimes look a little primitive, but they're, they're very distinctive. Uh, we talked about this main thing with the private and the public. Basically homicide is a private case, but it, because there is no, the, the victim can't bring his case, he has to have it brought by the relatives. And that's important is the, uh, the, the relatives are the only ones who can bring this case. But the other thing is unusual about uh, homicide cases, they have a religious aspect. In other cases, they, you know, the person is just guilty, but in a homicide case, the murderer has, is considered to be polluted. In other words, that means that he can be, he is dangerous and he has incurred the wrath of the gods and the, it's dangerous to be around him because the gods may punish him. Uh, they may punish him with all sorts of terrible things like boils or uh, terrible diseases, uh, or uh, his children will be born dead. Uh, that is if he's polluted. And these, again, views, some people thought that views about pollution were dying out, say, by about 500. But we have plenty of evidence that fears of pollution uh, were there. And again, that, so that the killer is considered to be polluted. So you've got to have special rules. And if a charge is brought against a person for murder, the Basilus, this man who's the king, he's the, one of the special magistrates, he's responsible for religion. He makes a proclamation that before the trial, the killer is supposed to stay away from sacrifices. He's supposed to stay away from lustral waters. He's supposed to stay out of the agora. And he's supposed to stay away from temples. And the reason is, is because if he goes to any of those places, he's going to corrupt them. The sacrifices will fail. The gods will be angry um, that there is someone polluted working in their temples and that that will punish everyone. And individuals are supposed to stay away from him because it's like he's kind of diseased, as it were. 
uh, and that pollution can be catching. So therefore you have those uh, rules. And then they also have, instead of uh, the just anocrisis, they have three preliminary trials, uh, which shows the importance of this. And these cases are tried before special judges, either before the Areopagus, which is the most experienced case. The Areopagus are judges who serve for life. So they have more experience and they have more respect. And that's an unusual court. And they try cases of intentional homicide. They also have something called the Ephetai. We don't know much about the Ephetai, but they may have been actually kind of elected. And they try cases of involuntary homicide. And also another kind of case that if a person is accused and says, I then killed this person justly uh, because he was on top of my, I caught him on top of my wife. And if a person walked into a room, he discovered somebody actually either seducing or raping his wife, he had the right to kill that person. And then also if the person was aiming at tyranny, there are a certain restricted number of cases where you could be tried, uh, where you could actually plead just homicide. Then in another very strange uh, kind of trial, if a certain person had been sent into exile for homicide and he was accused uh, of homicide in a second time, he was in exile because of the homicide and he wanted to have a case, but he couldn't come back to Athens because he was still considered polluted. So what he had to do was stand in a boat off the shore and the, sh the boat could not be connected to the shore even by a rope. And he stood in the boat, they obviously put an anchor down, and the judges came to the shore and they heard this case and they either acquitted him or they convicted him. But the main thing was he, because he was considered polluted, he could not set foot in Attica. So you have this it's a close, uh, special court called the Enfreato, which it seems to have been a place uh, on the coast. And this is interesting, it's a very strange procedure, but if you understand the logic of pollution, it makes perfect sense. Now, the other thing is also it's different in the, uh, the, are the punishments. Remember in public cases, it's usually a payment. Payment was not allowed in this. If you were convicted of, if you were convicted of deliberate homicide or intentional homicide, you either could be killed if you stayed, or you went into permanent exile and your property was confiscated. They were very serious about this. And if you, uh, you could not possibly come back. If you were convicted of voluntary homicide, you had to stay in exile until you convinced the kin to pardon you and have a purificatory sacrifice. And the reason for the purificatory sacrifice is it would remove the pollution. So that is, again, the uh, penalties are uh, very different. And as you see, it's kind of uh, kind of between betwixt and between the public uh, and the private. It's got kind of elements of both. The other thing which is also very important is that the accuser has to swear a solemn oath before his case. And then if he convicts, he also swears a solemn oath. What they do is they cut up animals. He stands in front uh, in their bloody entrails and swears that his charges are true and that if they're not true, he calls down a curse uh, on himself and his family. So as you can see, this is again, a little bit like the public, a little bit like the private, but there's a great deal of solemnity because this is a very serious crime uh, that needs to be treated in a distinctive way. A majority vote 
produces the verdict in this type of yeah, trial or something way. else? Yeah, and it's the same way. The other thing is also is the same procedure as in public trials. The accuser speaks first, the defendant speaks uh, first, then the accuser speaks again, and then the defendant speaks again. And the again, the voting is in exactly the same sort of way, secret ballot, but again, it's just by a majority vote. The other thing that's also important in this case is it's considered, it also takes place in the open air. And the reason is for that is that a person who is polluted uh, or is a, accused of murder and polluted cannot be under the same roof as the relatives of the victim, because that again would create pollution, serious pollution, and that would attract the wrath of the gods. So there are all sorts of very unusual procedures in here because of these belief in, the, in pollution. Uh, which again shapes the procedures. In closing, Edward, is there anything about the three different types of uh, proceedings that we chatted about today or the topic more broadly that is coming to mind right now that you want to make sure that it gets across in the episode before we wrap up? The important thing about uh, Athenian uh, trials are. Uh, is that uh, they had certain advantages and disadvantages. Uh, on the one hand, the proceedings were very uh, quick. It was over in a day. You didn't have trials that uh, dragged on for uh, years and years and years. Uh, and it was uh, simple. On the other hand, uh, one might say that it was kind of crude justice. There was this problem again. There were fewer protections, I think, for the defendant in a, uh, quote, criminal trial, quote, uh, public trial. And this led to problems. It also led to problems. People used the courts uh, to pursue political vendettas, and this led to problems, especially with the military. Uh, on the other hand, there was a sincere attempt to implement the rule of law. There was a sincere attempt to promote fairness. There was a sincere attempt to judge according to consistent rules. Uh, they did their best to achieve equality before the law, and they were obsessed, actually, with impartial judges, one uh, who were going to vote without uh, uh, favor or uh, without hostility and also would not be bribed. Uh, so in that sense, I think, uh, even though there were weaknesses in the system, there are weaknesses in all legal systems, uh, and those principles were very important. They were taken over by the Romans and they then uh, have been more or less kind of uh, recognized uh, today. Uh, so this idea of the rule of law uh, is very important. And I think a lot of people, when they look back to antiquity, they, they look at mainly democracy, that we've gotten our deity of democracy, even though there's some differences. But what they don't uh, see is that the Athenians also, and the Greeks in general, and see, they were very similar on this, also believed in the rule of law. And this ideal is something that uh, we owe to them. And it's very important to study their way of trying to uh, achieve it um, when we think about our own legal system. It was a pleasure chatting with you again, Edward. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you very much for having me again, Andrew. So the two books, everybody, that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Emeritus Professor Harris wrote, he's author of The Rule of Law in Action in Democratic Athens, and also author of Democracy and the Rule of Law in Classical Athens, Essays on Law, Society, and Politics. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Edward and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. 
Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.